are you doing with that? You're not gonna hurt me again. Don't touch me. Don't come near me, Leo. You haven't got the guts. This week, Leo gets shot. Welcome to Twin Peaks Rewatch from the Idle Thumbs Network. I am Chris Remo. I'm Jake Rodkin. And this is Twin Peaks Rewatch 6, Cooper's Dreams. Cooper's Dreams. Yep. Information stats for this episode. <laughs> it was written by Mark Frost. It was directed by Leslie Linka Gladder, who from Wikipedia has directed a ton of TV and still is up through Mad Men and some stuff. And it first aired on May 10th of 1990. Cool. Uh, so in this episode, uh, the police and company, what do we call the group that is Cooper, Truman, Andy, Cough. I've just been calling it Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department. All right. Plus bonus plus, Cooper. Yeah. So Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department uh, finds more evidence at Jock Renault's cabin and the log lady sort of becomes part of the investigation. Um, this all leads them to the scene of the murder. Uh, Shelly finally shoots Leo. Audrey threatens her way into a perfume counter job at her father's department store, and even more double-crossing is revealed in the mill arson plot. Yeah. So that, those are the big beats, I guess, Basically, from this every character who could conceivably be involved in a cross or double-cross in the mill storyline now is... I guess Pete still remains That's true. not complicit, <laughs> although he told Josie about the two uh, ledgers earlier. Yeah. Pete, he, Pete is part of it still. I can't wait, though, until Ben Horn... It has a meeting with Pete as well. It's like, maybe uh, maybe we can catch you in on this mill deal. And he's just like, well, deliver my money wrapped in plastic. <laughs> That's all that he knows how to say. This was, speaking of this, I guess, in this episode, this was a weird episode in that almost nothing new happened. Everything was just a further dive into something that is, right? It's like, we didn't, this is one of the f few episodes in these early, this early chunk of this show where new stuff isn't constantly being hurtled at us yep. by way of new characters or new plot lines. This is just everything becomes more interconnected and I think I think from higher a, stakes. I think from a purely being involved in the mystery standpoint, like if you're following this for the first time, I imagine the scene like they get all the information from Jacques uh, apartment, including like Cooper reaching up into the ceiling and pulling the flesh world right. issue down, and then trail following that trail to a substantial clue and substantial new location. That like that sort of is probably the meatiest yeah. meat of this episode, uh -huh. but it's not a new concept. You're right. It's just but, right. But, but it is an actual. It from is a the mystery investigation sort of structure standpoint. It's confirmation of a ton of stuff. They found where Laura was killed. They, they've confirmed that it's related to Jacques Renault, or they found what seems like the place that Laura was killed. There's blood. There's twine. Right. Mm -hmm. The poker chip comes <laughs> spilling out of the cuckoo clock mm -hmm. that ma exactly matches the thing that, you know, like yeah. pieces are coming together and that sort For of sure. like that. They find Waldo. Th yeah, they find Waldo. That thirst is sort of is satiated, but it's the things that we're used to seeing advancing in, in the show or didn't happen this week. Like when, when Dana and I finished watching it, she said the same thing as usually like, when nothing happened this week. Like this is not, it's an, it's nothing. Right. It's weird. Um, so it op so it opens with a big shot of a like a big red moon, a really for really really foreboding shot, and it's set against this incredibly boisterous Icelandic. This singing, episode does a ton which of I really enjoyed. This episode does a ton of stuff with shallow focus, which is weird. I don't know if that's just 
I've not noticed that in the show. But like this show, it, it starts with that shot of the moon. It's also got the evidence in uh, Jacques' cabin is tossed out of focus in like the most weird classic filmic shot. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the stuff involving Josie has has or that might be lighting change, not focus pull changes. Right when she's just like lording it up like a like a noir <laughs> villain in the Great Northern yeah. when everyone else is at the party. Yeah, I don't know. And then were were the shots of the uh, the four investigators kind of all coming into frame adjacent to one another during the tracking sequence. Oh, was that, in I don't remember. Focus? I can't, it was definitely a close shot. That, that feeling of just, yeah, a lot of weird closeness seemed like yeah. it was going on all over this episode for, I don't know the reason for that. It might just be the director's style. Yeah. Just decided she just might like that stuff. Yeah. Um, one thing I've noticed talking to not God, talking to, um, reading stuff. Noted, talking with David Lynch. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Um, reading things, interviews, I suppose, that have been done with directors of Twin Peaks episodes is they do often seem to mention being very influenced by 40s era noir, which does include a lot of close shots and and things like that. Looking at mid-century Hollywood feels like the sort of aesthetic they would be hoping directors would bring, especially after Blue Velvet existed. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, well, actually there also in that opening scene where, you, where, you know, it's established with the, the red moon shot and then over it, we hear the audio from the Icelanders in the great Northern, uh, Cooper is, you know, throughout this whole episode is plagued by these boisterous, uh, Nords and <clears throat> says to Diane, Diane, it just goes to show that once a traveler leaves his home, he surrenders almost 100% of his ability to control his environment. And this was, uh, I think, notable in that it shows Cooper at his least composed. Not that he's losing yeah. it or anything. It's the first time he's like actually just irritated and, and human in that way. Just right. Like, Acknowledging his inability to control his environment. Where he's Send me usually... those earplugs, I, which I deliberately didn't bring, but it turns right. out I'm going to need. Yeah, exactly. Like, and there was – someone wrote in about this actually – uh, ab- about how it is significant that this was a Frost episode, um, or Mark, you know, Mark Frost, a Mark Frost written episode because of how Cooper was portrayed. Let me actually see if I can just find that, that email now, because, okay. uh, I think, uh, it is interesting and it had not occurred to me. Is it a thing that they say is just Mark Frost del- has Cooper, go to this place that he doesn't go in a lot of other writers. Yeah. So here, here's, here's, here's Joel Baco writing, writing into uh twin peaks at idlethumbs.net. First off, really enjoying the podcast and the forums where I've become commenting as lost in the movies. It'll be great to listen and read as newcomers and veteran viewers react to the show's many twists and turns. This episode is interesting to me because it's the first solo Mark Frost teleplay. David Lynch was off shooting wild at heart at the time. I think this points to some interesting differences between Frost and Lynch, especially when it comes to Agent Cooper. Notice how uncertain and uncomfortable Cooper is when interacting with the log lady. Even though he relies on dreams and Tibetan rock tosses for clues, it appears he isn't fully in touch with his mystical side. For Lynch, Cooper was an idealized version of the perfect detective, in touch with the spirit world, slightly off kilter, almost a bit otherworldly with his childlike enthusiasms and brilliant intuitions. Obviously, Frost embraced this aspect of Coop, but he also paints him as more human, flawed, and uncertain. Um, Then he goes into some other things that we will have to wait for the spoiler section to discuss. We can come back to this email later. Um, I thought that was an interesting observation. And to yep. me that, that extended out to that opening scene yep. where Cooper's a, a letting this all get to him. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't make that connection in part because even when Cooper first saw the log lady, 
Yeah, he was still... Like, that was actually the thing that was a step too far for him. Yes, you're right about that. Um, but the scene with the log lady in this episode feels like he does finally just come to peace with it. Because mm-hmm. when he's talking to the log lady, he just straight up says, what did your log see that night? Which is exactly what she said to him in the right, pilot. Exactly. My he's log still, saw he's still not in night. his element. You, yeah. you get the sense. But he's like doing exactly what he's right. supposed but to But then I, I don't mean to jump ahead too much. But then sure. once once she starts recounting the stuff that the log said, he totally like takes a – he just – he dives in on that 100%. Oh, totally. Because yep. everything yep. that the log said – Aligns with all, with, his, with all of his yes, weird stuff. Exactly, it's like, oh, exactly, the log's yeah. on the same page. Yep, yep, yep. Totally true. Uh, so we... Um, but no, that's really I guess the next scene that I found interesting... Not interesting, I'm sorry. It is the, We've seen this scene a million times, but it is always done so well, I think, when Leland, a haggard Leland Palmer shows up at the Great Northern uh, when, with, you know, as Jerry and Horn and Ben Horn are talking about whatever salacious nonsense they're, they're always sort of waggling eyebrows about. And uh, Leland Palmer shows up in a just totally disheveled state saying, you know, I feel like I need something to occupy my mind. And I think it's really great how, what is the name of this actor? Do you remember? Ray Wise? Ray Wise. I think he plays him amazingly well. It is such an outrageous performance. And even in, even in just a really short, almost throwaway scene like that, I think he just knocks it out of the park. It yeah. is bonkers. All the Leland stuff in this episode is is good. Yeah. Even though it's the same thing that he always does. The, the way that it was portrayed <laughs> in this episode thing. actually ah, Sorry, I'm just, I know we are trying no, we to keep this more in order. Want to talk about the Well, just cuz the the scene at the end when he when it is the Icelandic like welcome bash, party where man. all the like the who's who of Twin Peaks shows up. Leland shows up and does the thing that he always does, which is big band music comes on for unknown reasons and he starts dancing and crying. Well, so that was interesting because it really is unknown reasons, right? Jerry Horn is is basically giving a toast. Oh, right, because his microphone shorts start shorting out. His microphone shorts out and immediately big band music starts playing. Right. No apparent instigator or reason. Right. Which, of course, leads to Leland Palmer sort of staggering onto the dance floor. Is that complete coincidence? Is it... That Leland somehow brought that in with right, him. Is yeah. it that the world is conspiring against Leland? Like mm-hmm. just the fates are just, just you know fucking him. Yeah. But the scene, like when when Ben gets Catherine to dance with him to try and like give him a dance partner mm-hmm. and cheer him up, and then he just starts crying, and then they all turn his crying into the into a wacky right, dance. Right. He starts grabbing his head as yeah. though he's just you know paralyzed like, by migraine or something and Catherine I actually kind of mimes I it. actually thought that was I like I had forgotten about that and I was it was it was a little bit gross but it was only when it cut to showing Audrey looking on and actually just being totally destroyed oh, yeah, by yeah. watching Leland be destroyed mm-hmm. that I was like oh my god this is the worst Oh yeah no that's an amazing scene I think it's great Yeah and we should probably not get too far into that because I want to back up and talk about all of Audrey sort of spying on the events of mm-hmm. of totally uh, her dad and Catherine, because her responses have sort of an arc over the back third of the episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. So if we jump back to where we were before, um, this is at, this is the point at which um, the you know sheriff's department, I suppose, is at Jock Renault's. Um, yeah, this Doctor like Hayward is there also. The meaty mystery chunk yes, of yeah. this episode. So he identifies the blood on Leo's shirt. It's not Laura's. Um, they find the blood type does match Jacques Renault, though. Yeah, right? yes. They find a Flesh World magazine. Which we've seen before in the show, yeah. But we ex- it is explained finally what the deal with that is, which is that it's used to anonymously connect advertisers with readers, who, yeah, who place pictures, you know, attractive pictures of women 
you know, with anonymous readers. Um, uh, obviously, as we know, Runette was right. Runette was in there, and then in that Cooper confirms it. that one of the pictures is Laura, and then they say yeah, a thing. By, <laughs> the way he does that, by the way, is by matching the curtains in the picture to the ones from his to dream. the ones from his dream. <laughs> yes, yeah, like red curtains. It's Laura, which yeah. is ridiculous. Yes, um, and then they. They make it explicit that that truck is actually Leo's truck after they did the cross dissolve from it from the first flesh world in the pilot or second episode or something. Mm-hmm. The yeah, that, yeah, that truck image comes back a lot. And then again in this episode when – They straight up say that. Did you notice that Leo's yeah, truck yeah, yeah. is totally, – totally. I thought they did before. I thought they did before. Uh, it was just no, – it, it was just, just only the show confirmed. It was like it, a not perfect character. It was that actual shot in the magazine was right. the shot that it cross dissolves yep, yep, to. Yep, yep, yep. True. Um, um, so speaking of speaking of Leo, the show uses that as another opportunity to cross cut to Leo's home, where we see uh, Shelley and Bobby. We learn that um, Shelley married Leo in the 11, in the eleventh grade. Yeah, she dropped out of high school. dropping out of school, which I guess makes a little bit more sense that yeah. she would do something impulsive like that at that age. Because man, what a just awful, terrible marriage. Um, <laughs> yeah. How old How old are we supposed to think she is at this point? Is she what like nineteen or something? Yeah, I'd always thought that she's maybe a grade above them at most. Yeah, like. Because Audrey says she's 18 in this episode. Shelly has to just be at most 20, yeah. but probably... That's, that's what I think, 19 or 20. Yeah. yeah. And once again, there's a scene of Shelly and and, uh, and Bobby talking about... We're sort of <laughs> so clearly being turned on by fantasies of just horrible violence or threats against Leo. Right. Um, but of course... Bobby's never going to be the one to do anything about it the, right. for all of his bravado. And then we know we, that is confirmed. Bobby's just going to make weird smirky faces where like half his face yeah. twists and then, to the and then side jump and out weird of his clothes, just, yep. whatever. There's the slightest suggestion <laughs> yeah. that Leo might be nearby. Yep. Um, and then it is confirmed that he's not going to be the one to do anything about it because it, <laughs> that's in the same episode, Shelley finally shoots Leo. Yeah. Um, which was a nice, that was a nice moment. I have to say, I mean, <laughs> What? That guy sucks. Yeah. I mean, he's no. just, he's unredeemably shitty, right? So it's good that he was shot, says Chris. It is. You don't think it was good that he gets shot? And then, uh, you know, before, before that happens, um, you know, that, that was a, that was an unintended, I guess, uh, outcome right now, but Shelly and, and, uh, Bobby had been sort of continuing to try and plant the seeds for this bigger downfall of leo which included and oh, right. coming coming by the house and shelly making more implications she that delivers Leo's like the perfect the perfect frame story of like exactly yeah leo and jock were here having a fight i think it was about laura palmer yep anyway good to see you police <laughs> officer closed door who like, then responds jack renault yep <laughs> good old andy uh there's more ed and norma i don't really have anything to say about that they're no. destined to not be together. It seems. I liked Norma's little. No, talk. her little thing was great. She said, you know, well, "Maybe that's our problem. We don't want to hurt anyone." Yeah, we never just take what we want. Yeah, yeah. that 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 was really nice. Yeah. Um, it's sort of heartbreaking and and yeah, but but you know, they're not suspects on the murder, so we don't care. No, I, <laughs> no, it just it, that moment was good, but sort of their whole mm-hmm. their whole thread in this episode. Other than that, this I guess actually points to something if i were to evaluate this episode i guess within the context of a lot of these other things i think this episode has some of the best character moments that episodes have recently which makes me wonder if that's just mark frost like mark frost thing you know he's really good at just i like there's a lot of just little just moments little in this scenes. episode that have, yeah. yeah i mean even starting from cooper at the beginning like it's nice to see a more 
vulnerable, irritable side of that character who is mm-hmm. otherwise such a Boy Scout, basically, right? Yep. Um, and then and that that little bit from Norma was, I thought, really touching. Um, and I do I do like the you know we're talking about Shelley and Leo, and I do really like the extreme juxtaposition of just the most indulgent, like sexually aroused discussion of what they're going to do to Leo, and then so constantly then, then the, being like. Ed and Norma just like maybe being old and an adult is yeah. this. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, I, this is probably the last time we'll talk for a while. Yep, it's nice. To, I guess I should. I gave short shrift to that scene when I said nothing happens because it is. It is really nice to see just adults acting like adults. <laughs> this whole show is such an outrageous, just like right, just nonstop train wreck of soap opera. You know, insanity. People screaming and making wild faces at each other. Yeah. <laughs> And then, you know, two adults kind of just sadly looking at each other and saying, well, I guess this is what life is. Yeah. It's, kind just... of, it's a nice counterpoint, right? Yeah. Uh, let's see. What else do we have here? Um, the next big scene after that, I think, is actually the next scene after it, which is Audrey yes, getting true. her job, mm-hmm. which which she does by threatening a rape accusation, basically. Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> she gets the job. <laughs> she gets the job. Um, including Including the extra little bonus demand on the end when when she says what's going to happen and he says yes and she says yes what says, yes ms horn <laughs> yep owned what a, what a crazy terrifying precedent to set yeah, as the heir to this company if you're anyone who works there just like well, well I mean, I'm, like I father like daughter right i mean yeah, that I guy probably true. didn't get there by that's by, that's true he probably got there by going ah suggestively and covering one eye with his hand yeah <laughs> Uh, so, speaking of good character moments, the worst one in probably the show so far <laughs> is the next scene, which is James and Donna together, just like yeah. out in like just I don't remember where they are, some just lovey location. Of house or yeah, they're just yeah, they're just know. in a pastoral zone. Yeah, right. And James is just like, I don't want there to be any secrets between us. Anyway, here's my life story delivered about in this voice, yep. even more boring. Yeah, than right. This. Including just what the most like obvious tortured Just, yeah background. Oh. my dad my dad ran off mom's an alcoholic she goes and shacks up with men all right like maybe that was compelling somewhere but not out of the mouth of that guy yep <laughs> that's true like oof yeah and then he says, it's the secrets people keep that ruin any shot at happiness, which I guess is supposed to be just sort of the thesis of this show. Yeah, but unfortunately, the thesis of the show came out of James's mouth know, to yep. Donna. <laughs> yep, it's pretty unfortunate. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That's the beginning of, of bad times. Speaking of... For, tw- uh, for a story arc in the show. Like, spoilers, this just doesn't... Oh, yeah. Is not good. Yeah, for sure. So, speaking of... <laughs> speaking of... of weird scenes with james and donna um next thing that happens we already talked about the actual next thing that happens which is more renette jock Renault stuff but the actual other next thing that happens is maddie meets donna and james so am i crazy or has she already met both of them and yet she reintroduces she introduces herself to them yeah. as though none of them have met before it tv shows itself for sure right yeah, that was wasn't, strange she have a scene with them where she said like i look like laura wasn't that well she met we, so we know that, that she, she directly before? met james in the diner right. where they are in this scene again they met face to face very overtly and we also know that i think in the previous episode or maybe the same episode maddie was with uh donna and uh sarah palmer 
and everyone else when right. the police sketch was happening. Right. So maybe they just didn't ever say a word. Maybe they just sat there in a room together. Maybe Donna just sat there looking at this girl who looks exactly like her dead friend, and they just never said hi. Right. I don't know. A little bit hard to believe. So this completely nothing scene happened uh, other than Maddie getting drawn into the investigation fold, ordering a cherry Coke and taking not a sip of it. Right, and then walking away. <laughs> walking away. And what was funny about that to me is that the camera at that point – Pans away to <laughs> to do a, to do a close up on Hank. It does a, it does a close time. up on Hank's domino hand. First. It does a close up on domino. But to do that, it has to effectively also do a close up on the cherry coke that wasn't drank. And I don't think that was intentional. No. I think that was a byproduct <laughs> of the blocking. So but it's just <laughs> a coke. And yep, she didn't drink, drink any of it. And I'm, I because I noticed that she didn't drink the coke, and then the show like doubled down. I'm pointing out that she didn't drink the coke. I'm like, is this actually? And then meant it to starts rolling the music again because it's going to start panning over that domino. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my god, what does this mean? Does she not drink things? There was, in the original blocking of that shot, Hank angrily grabs the coke and chugs it, <laughs> and then just crushes the, the plastic right. cup with his hand. Yeah, it was a glass. Oh, he breaks. Hopefully he smashes he breaks the glass, his cuts bleeds. his hand, and then the camera further. Does a tight zoom He's on He's going to do bleeding. another one of those weird soft focus shots where you just <laughs> see he blood flips, dripping onto the domino. And then he flips his domino in his bloody hand. <laughs> yeah, they thought maybe we'll just, okay, keep the coke in because that's interesting. But let's move the camera <laughs> to, uh, maybe it's coke like cocaine. Maybe Maddie has oh, a coke habit. Cherry but she, cocaine. <laughs> but yeah, no, the camera move is, is, is weird at all. It's, it's, it's notable, but <laughs> only in that it is noted. Yes. <laughs> so, uh. Oh, yeah, sorry. It is the worst of all camera moves because I believe it then shows the hand and then, like, does a 90 degree rotation. He'd be a front on shot of Hank playing with the diamond. Yeah, that's true. In the middle. That's true. Oh, yep. what a bad, what a bold choice. What a, what, Twin Peaks just makes those crazy calls that you wouldn't make in a regular mm-hmm. television show. That, that segues directly into that. That is one of those shots where a bunch of things all sort of were strung together. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, individually, with very little right. point. Um, so Norma and Shelley get back from their sort of beauty day to find Hank in the diner and that's about it. Um, but importantly, we then get to see more invitation to love, uh, which includes oh, choice an outrageous week. guy in, There's basically in a Hank shades surrogate. and a bandana. Yeah. Just beating the shit out of Chet and laughing about it. And that's it. That's all that happens. Chet is like triple chin pudgy like whoa mm-hmm. guy, yeah. right? Who's just yep. in every ep- He usually yeah. has a cravat on me. Yes. <laughs> he just gets the crap kicked out of him. Yeah. There's a there was a good observation made about um Invitation to Love. God, I wonder this this was probably a forum post actually and not a uh and not a reader mail, but someone made a really interesting observation again about Mark Frost specifically that I guess the whole uh Invitation to Love being a weird soap opera mirror universe of Twin Peaks was apparently a Mark Frost thing. According to this reader, who who I will, whose uh, post I will try to find, um, the all of the instances apparently generally in Lynch episodes, invitation to love. If it exists, it only exists as a title card. Yep. But in the Mark Frost episode, Mark Frost episodes, it actually exists. It's way more common for it to be the mirror yeah, of a scene, right? And 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 this person's argument is that. Um, Mark Frost was actually more responsible for a lot of the sort of postmodern self-aware 
the like, satirical slash commentary, self commentary yes. stuff. Yeah. yeah. This person also made the the general argument that Mark Frost's kind of importance as a co creator is frequently under yep. uh undervalued because obviously David Lynch is a much Right. It feels like people often name. often the credit that Mark Frost gets, which I think is kind of a backhanded compliment, is he's the guy who reined in David Lynch to allow him to make a TV show that was popular, right. which is like Man, those guys seemed to really enjoy working together. Yeah, and there's actually a really interesting thing about their collaboration, which is that they'd been working together for years before the show got greenlit. This wasn't a thing where like David Lynch wanted to make a TV show. They'd done multiple and then got, pilots and then and got stuff. hooked up with, with yeah. yeah, or uh, pilots and film ideas and stuff. That... Right, exactly. And this just happened to be the thing that got picked up and went big. But they had actually been collaborators for years, so I think it's probably pretty fair to assume that they were e- they they were relatively equal partners in this. Um, as opposed to just Mark Frost being the facilitator of David Lynch's weird ideas for a TV audience. Yep. Um, so I thought that I'll, I'll try to find that post later, but I, but I thought that was an interesting argument. Yep. Um, anyway, next we go to Bobby and Dr. Jacoby, or I'm sorry, Dr. Jacoby and the whole Briggs family in a really, I think kind of first of its kind scene for Twin Peaks where we get really, really rapid camera flip pans right back and forth between uh, Bobby's father and Bobby's mother mm-hmm. being interrogated by Dr. Jacoby. And that's something that I think is really common in modern television, that kind of super quick kind of visual gag, of, right. you know, switching between characters on a dime. Um, I don't remember seeing that kind of thing very often in this show before this point. No. Yeah, the, the the flips in directors is way more noticeable on this viewing of the show to me than it was yeah, previously. Too, yeah, it's it's interesting to watch for because I I'm I'm not really sort of I don't really have to worry about absorbing the plot in a detailed way as much because I already know essentially what happens. Yep. Uh, that stuff is really apparent. It's also just not a thing that I think of when I think about television. Yeah, because it's it's hard to the right? house style, especially like either I feel like TV shows are bland and by the book, or there's a house style that is right. so managed by the showrunner or what also happens on some modern TV shows is that there is not even a director per episode, but there's just a stable of directors, like especially big, long serial shows like mm-hmm. the modern equivalent of Twin Peaks. Like um, Mad Men or something? Yeah. I, I, Mad Men, I don't know how they do, but I know like the, the most extreme example of this. there are a lot this, of returning directors on Mad Men. But like in um, on, on um, House of Cards on Netflix, I believe mm. that there is not a director per episode and that they just – spread the entire season out amongst a stable of directors who operate on the house style. And the agreement is you get two directorial credits per episode. Oh, wow. Interesting. At least I think that it, it was, two per season, two per season. It was like, it was, it's house of cards or some other there's, wow, that's, there's some show like that. The one like, but I think that's, that's increasingly a not uncommon working model is like, or if you have like a four part huge continuity episode or something, and, you, and you're of, like, how does the previously on connect so perfectly to this scene when it's directed by a different guy? It's like, right. it's not, it's actually just that those. That's interesting. I wonder how that works for things like Golden Globe Awards for best episode. Yeah. You know, for episodes. I mean, I'm not. You sh- think that kind of thing would actually end yeah, up I, mattering? I don't know enough careers. about how that stuff is laid out to speak no, but on I, it with any authority. I but I, rem- I remember reading that, and I think it was about House of Cards. That seems like the kind of thing that a kind of strong showrunner. That seems like the kind of power a figure like that would want to exert if you're trying to make a show that trades a lot on its sort of theme. And stylistic right. yeah. uniqueness and, and things like that. That's interesting. Uh, this show is definitely not like that. And uh, no, like and it, seeing it, it and, falls in a weird sort of 
not like not a middle ground like a like a an actual average midpoint but it feels like it falls in like a hole in between the sort of incredibly showrunner heavy like Joss Whedon or Aaron Sorkin rewrites every episode secretly right. or uh, or Matthew Weiner or or the old television style of like we'll do our best to keep the wheels on this thing right. but we're assuming people don't actually care and Twin yeah. Peaks is like it is it is somewhere in between those two things you're right because it has a very strong identity unto itself but it's it's quite clear especially watching it in this context that this stuff there is a decent amount of, of, yeah. of variation yeah um so the stuff with with bobby's parents in this scene is is i think more of a gag than anything else but then as soon as it's bobby alone in the room we get the absolute most intense bleakest vision of laura that i think the show has presented yet i mean it yep. is dark like jacoby grills bobby the he opens with bobby what happens the first time you and laura made love did you cry did she laugh at you which is i mean that's already intense yep. um and then that freaks bobby out also yeah he gets totally freaked out and that's what that's what kind of forces him open yep right i mean that's what that's what uh yeah, it was, it's incredibly irresponsible psychotherapy by Jacoby, but also successful. Yeah, but it's because, yeah, it's, well, it's because Jacoby is deep into this, right? Like, yeah, well, Jacoby's not operating as a dispassionate psychotherapist. He's operating as someone who also wants to know what happened because he's obsessed with Laura like everyone else is. Yep. At least that's that's my take on it. I'm yeah. sure there's part of it. The that, side effect, though, is that it ends up potentially actually it's like scarring Bobby or like, like it's opening scar scars. It, it probably does all of these things. Like yeah. Bobby probably is totally damaged and destroyed by this, but it also probably actually surfaces stuff that Bobby was not letting himself yeah, that's surface. True. Like yeah, he probably, probably does also need to get success, past that successful stuff. Yeah. In, in a light, but also totally disastrous. No, you're right. You're right. You're probably right about that. Um, I, th I, don't, I think people don't like when I read really long quotes on the show all the time, but I'm going to read this one because it's so intense. Uh, he says, Laura wanted to die. She told me. She said people tried to be good, but they're really sick and rotten, her most of all. And every time she tried to make the world a better place, something terrible came up inside her and pulled her back down into hell and took her deeper and deeper into the blackest nightmare. And each time it got harder to get back up into the light. And then Jacoby pushes this even further, suggesting that Laura, you know, harbored such terrible secrets that it brought her to the point of exploiting of identifying and exploiting weaknesses and others to for all kinds of ends, including like degrading and humiliating them. And, and it's quite clear Bobby was, you know, on the receiving like end of this. Bobby and James and Laura's parents and Donna. Yeah. Like, I mean, when yep. he said that, it actually like yeah, it was a good crystallization of just like people want to be around Laura because she's, she's got magnetic these, and clearly yeah, she's powerful got all these, yeah. personality. But at yeah. the same time, mm -hmm. It seems like no one has the cost had it, is high. Yeah, no one's had an interaction with Laura that did not leave them like leave a bad taste in their mouth, leave a sort of weird animalistic fear in its wake, and all these other things. And like that, it, it's crystallized really well by this mm -hmm. Jacoby and Bobby conversation. Yeah. And I think Bobby wraps up. I forget if this is actually the closing line of the scene, but Bobby essentially wraps up by saying she wanted so much. Yep. In just a completely despairing way, which then then he sort of crossfades into like a soaring bird, which I thought was a really weird juxtaposition. I didn't, yeah, I felt like that bird was not, I don't know, that bird didn't feel like it was related to that scene as much as it was just a passage of time. Because the bird is firmly related to all the stuff that happens after that. Oh, for sure. Which is I mean, going through the two the different cabins scene. and yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yes. Um, so what is the deal with what happens next? So they're in the woods. They're tracking. What are they, what are they tracking? They're trying to find what? I, yeah, I don't remember. How what, do they know what they're looking for? I either we both missed this and it's very obvious or this is just a deliberate misdirection because it feels like 
Hawk like sees that broken branch and like <laughs> Which was ridiculous. Classic <laughs> so absurd. But whatever. Yeah. They they they're like, we're at the cabin and they all like line up and draw guns and then it feels like it was just like Gotcha, it's not that cabin, it's the log lady's yeah, cabin. But were they just looking for cabins? I mean it seems so odd. Yeah, I don't know. It's so like weird. were they just looking for trails that go out into the middle of nowhere and then they happen to find yeah, that one? Like, do they then, not know where the log lady lives in general? Does the sheriff not know this? I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I feel like either my eyes glazed over for one crucial shot or I know, this I feel was like just kind of deliberately a little well. bit goofy. Yeah. Um will be corrected. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. Anyway, for what, whatever they were doing, they find the log lady's cabin, and we've we've already talked about this a bit. She, this is this is the point at which Twin Peaks, I think, starts getting really Twin Peaksy in the way that people sort of make reference to, like the way that Twin, when Twin Peaks is parodied, it's like yes, the it's language like that the lady, log lady uses. Yes, it, it, exactly. That's exactly Just right. Speaking in total coded nonsense. Right. The owls won't see us in here. Shut your eyes, and you'll burst into flames. You know all all of this. Yeah. My husband is a logging man. It's he met the devil. The devil is a coward hiding in the smoke. That that one actually feels like the the whatever. Um, I I read that on its surface as just he's a logger who burned in a forest fire. Sure, but yeah, all of this stuff plus the red room stuff basically, um, if you combine those two things together, you get like the 90s Simpsons parodies of Twin Peaks. Right. Like yes, exactly. The Mr. Burns who shot Mr. Burns episode when. Uh, there's a weird, when Chief Wiggum has that dream with Lisa Simpson holding a burning card saying this suit burns better backwards. And then, uh, like it's just all of this. Yeah. I saw that scene way before I watched Twin Peaks. So when I finally <laughs> right. saw all this stuff in yeah, Twin Peaks, yeah. I'm like, oh, that's, that's what that joke is. Mm -hmm. And now there are people who probably will see Twin Peaks before the Simpsons because they'll watch Twin Peaks and then be like, oh, I'll watch that old show, the Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the things that is noteworthy about this scene is that Log Lady starts in, you know, as as we're saying, this very uh, iconic, pseudo-indecipherable Twin Peaks language, but then ends up by just describing beat for beat what happened the night of the crime. Yep. Right? I mean, she, she sort of leads with ambiguity, but then moves into just essentially... A, a crime report you know i mean she still she still says it in a in a sort of ostensibly cryptic way but she's basically just describing events and peppering them with phrases like the owls were near but mm -hmm. but she's just describing what happened um so at that point this is now i think understood both by the characters in the show and to us as the audience to be actual legitimate crime scene information or you know Crime information. She's two girls, which we assume to be Laura and Renette, two men, Jacques, maybe Leo, they're not sure, a third man, or I'm sorry, a third man. Ned Thirdman. Yes. And then as they leave, I'm sorry, no, after they leave, so they leave for cabin, they keep tracking because they're finding this other cabin. Um, and then we get that crazy four like forehead right. shot that I already mentioned, which is amazing. And then in the background, you hear that song that's playing that is, that is one of the most overtly stylistic shots i think yep we've seen in the in the show i mean the, the twin peaks has a lot of striking composition in it but there's not a lot of shots like this which feel like they could almost be from a music video or something in terms of how 
stylized they are. Yep. Right? Like that that is a shot that can only exist if you tell your four actors they have to do this very careful choreography, this very careful composition. The shot has to be framed perfectly. It's set with a pop song in the background. Yep. That is not something you see on television very often. No, it it is like it's funny though because that particular song and even just describing it as very strange forced composition with Mm-hmm. Uh, incongruous music in the background. If it wasn't for the specifics of what that shot actually feels like, it, it is the sort of thing you could describe, and they'd be like, "Oh, sounds like a David Lynch doing a TV show." But like, it's not. <laughs> but it's not. All. It's not at all. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, I don't have anything to say other no, that's, than that. That's a, like, really, that's a really good. Point. I think that that happens sometimes, deliberately or not, with different directors doing this. Is you get things that on paper are sort of, if you check all the boxes, right. Sound like they could be something that David Lynch made, but are unmistakably mm-hmm. not him. Yeah, it's just sure. a different person well, it's, doing it's those way, same. It's way too neat for yeah. the actual equivalent David Lynch shot, right? It, it's David a lot, Lynch it's, had directed this episode. I bet that shot wouldn't exist. Yeah. It, it is just a lot of the same elements, but completely divorced from context and used in a completely different context to create a completely different effect. Yeah. Which could be cool or could be bad or could be, reveled in or could be dismissed depending on who you are and on what the shot is. But mm-hmm. uh. So the actual scene that follows that shot, which is them investigating this cab cabin is mystery, like jackpot town. basically. Right. Yeah. There's all, there's what twine, there's the poker chip, there's a camera with film in it. Yeah, there's there's Waldo, blood, the red curtains. Blood, yeah. Waldo's yeah. there. Um, and also this, this music is playing either on a looping record or possibly a broken record. It seems like it skips yeah. at a point and just keeps itself restarting. Why is that? Why did someone leave that well, on? Uh, Cooper whispers or says to himself, there's always music in the air, right? Or whatever that quote is. There's, he mm-hmm. says, yeah, he does. Yeah. I didn't write that down, but he says something like that. You're right. He recounts something that he had heard from, yeah. from his dream. Uh huh. But it reminds me of the shot later in this episode when the music starts playing, when, Leland goes nuts. Right. Right. I mean, like this episode that happened, that kind of thing happens twice. I mean, we don't know if the reason the music is playing in this cavern ca- uh, cabin is also inexplicable because we just don't know what happened before this, but it does seem unusual. Right. Yep. Um, I guess we're coming up, coming up on the end of the episode here. So, um, after that, that's when we see Josie smoking in darkness at the great Northern. That shot is really it's good. Such a, it's such a good shot. And then the whole Icelander party, which we already, have talked about, I will point out that Ben Horn, there's a payoff for the Swede and Norwegian. What do you get when you cross a Sweden or Norwegian? You get the payoff of that this time where he uses that joke on someone else, uh, a socialist who wants to be king. Right. Kind of a and, weak joke. Yeah. Crack goes down like gangbusters in the yep. scene. Though. No, they love it. Um, so at that, you know, soon after Catherine and Ben uh, meet again. Right. To and talk Audrey about goes into classic audrey spy spot mm, yep uh oh this is like it starts off as like a domestic thing it's Catherine being mad at ben that he has a poker oh, chip yeah. from one eye jack yeah, he tries to bullshit her about it which is like also <laughs> she's cheating on her husband with ben but is mad that ben is going to see a prostitute and right. ben is like why would i have those fairies <laughs> and like they yep. kind of soothe it over but it's another one of the like People in Twin Peaks' affairs have affairs. Like, yep, it's just... Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Um, oh, and then they, they start getting a little hot over stuff, and then yeah. Ben's like, let's burn the mill tonight. Or no, Catherine, no, Catherine says does, that. and Ben she, says, hold up. He says, hold I got up. A guy. I've got a guy. <laughs> right. And then Audrey... I've like, got an incompetent guy. 
<laughs> yeah, I've got he's, who Leo. Oh my god! Like if Ben had <laughs> revealed. Well, okay, yeah. Who's doing it? Uh, I'd prefer not to say. No, I really would like to know. This is important. <laughs> it's Leo. Oh, okay. Just burn it. I'll just do it. I got it. I'll just go burn it tonight. It's fine. Um, Audrey hears this, and then they start like they start. Uh, Catherine and Ben kind of start going at it, mm-hmm. and Audrey Audrey's like tickled by this. She laughs, but she also like I couldn't tell if the laugh was just weird acting or if uh, it was that also that she was kind of like sure a yeah. little bit put As, off by it because yeah. it was like I couldn't tell if it was like a full laugh to herself about it or if it was sort of like I'm laughing no, right. because it I have to laugh that at this. quality of giddiness where it's almost like <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, oh, no. yeah you know like yeah. I might be about to watch a gross horrible thing involving yep. my dad like everything is terrible yep but like. She also knows her dad is in some just heinous garbage at this oh, point. Oh, for sure. Yes, definitely. Um, but I guess that response, also, I sort of back-checked it when she's watching... Um, Leland. When she's watching her dad around, and yeah. Catherine just basically make a farce out of Leland's pain, and she's just flat-out crying at that. It sort of made me yeah. jump back to her previous response. And no, like, that's, that's, a, that's a good point. As, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. totally. Um um, so we've, we've, we've talked about, I think the rest of the stuff in that scene, uh, we, we next see yet another hidden compartment. What? Uh, yeah. Maddie finds a tape in Laura's room because she remembers oh, that yeah. she used to, she used to unscrew a bedpost bed and use it as a hiding place. Yep. She finds a cassette tape, which will presumably share <laughs> the contents of next week. But. When Madeline is in that scene and she's sneaking around, she's just like modern portrait of a hipster. It's hilarious. <laughs> I don't know. It was really funny to me that she just, it, like, those big glasses made her look like a dork then, and now they're just what people wear, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Or at least as of a couple of years ago, I did. Uh, so we see that Ben Horn and, and Josie Packard are also working together. We've already discussed this a bit. Yeah. And it, to, to your point about people in Twin Peaks, their affairs have affairs. That is true both of romantic affairs as well as dastardly affairs. Yep. <laughs> Everyone's machinations have machinations. Uh, yeah, Josie was just like that. The whole party scene opened with a contextless shot of what is clearly Josie just sitting yeah. in a dark room uh-huh. smoking. Yep. And the scene ends with Ben turning the light on and being mm-hmm. like, hello. I'm like, what? <laughs> she just was sitting there looking. The whole time. Just yep. like lording. For the for the whole like crazy dance scene and all that stuff, just to be like, I have the correct ledger. You told me where to find it because Ben told her where to find it. Mm-hmm. She stole it, so now Ben has access to both books and Ben has access to both women who have any stake in the mill. Right. Yep, and we don't really know what that means or what he's doing with it, right? Like we, I don't know why he's talking to Josie other than just to maintain power on all sides of the equation, right? Like I don't understand what his plan is at this point. Do you? I mean, I've seen this show before. I have forgotten it. Okay. <laughs> I've totally forgotten it because this storyline okay. is a we'll, convoluted mess. We'll get there. Yeah. Man, I've totally forgotten. What? You're not going to tell me in the spoiler part? You got to tell me. <laughs> um, um, so, you know, next up, Leo gets shot. We've seen that already. And the episode closes out. With, oh, I do remember. Anyway. <clears throat> we The episode closes out with Cooper getting back to his hotel room to find Audrey seemingly naked or essentially naked right. in his bed. Uh, saying, don't make me leave. Please don't make me leave. Yep. End, end episode. Cliffhanger. Yep. I guess. I, guess. I mean, that's tradition pretty intense, of, right? Because yeah. she'd been up to this point kind of laying on the, the charm sort of. But right. But then it, it seems like she just, a few like, steps. maybe I'll just sneak into your bed with no clothes yeah. and you'll find me there. Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. 
So that's Cooper's dreams. What dreams he has. Um, I f- you want to do some mail from readers? You want to talk about that bonkers bush thing? <laughs> we'll call it that bonkers bush thing. You know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, no. Uh, uh, something that someone sent into us over Twitter um, is a clip, is like a page from a book, and I, I don't know the context. I don't know what the book is actually from. Yeah. But uh, a couple people sent it in, actually. But it, the the tweet just said um, it was originally posted to Twitter by Ryan Hamilton Walsh. I, I don't know who that is. Um, oh, he's a he's a songwriter in some band. But um, and then a couple of people sent his tweet into us, and it just said Gorbachev made H.W. Uh, Bush try and get David Lynch to admit who killed Laura Palmer. <laughs> and do we? Do you want to just read this whole thing, or how do you want to? How do you want to discuss this at all? Like, it just, do you want to maybe just, sum it up? It just feels like yeah, Gorbachev. When Twin Peaks was on, was was apparently obsessed with Twin Peaks, and through this insane chain of people, tried to get David Lynch to tell him who killed Laura Palmer. Yeah. But he did it by way of like going through a contact. He it sounds like he asked President Bush. Yeah. He asked President Bush, who then tried to get stuff down the chain to get to David Lynch, and David Lynch at first was like, what? And then was coy about it, and then said, he like said, I can't tell you. And then that ended up having to go back up the chain through President Bush to Gorbachev saying, sorry, David Lynch won't tell me who killed Laura Palmer. Yep. I love that, like, if there was a wacky, like, montage of Twin Peaks, fever sweeps America, like... <laughs> That's when you have the like weird the, the interview that's like yeah I got a call from uh turns out to be President Bush saying Gorbachev wants to know then like it just whip pans <laughs> to like the cover of Time magazine right. having David Lynch on it or something like just yeah, about no, how the true. world is swept yeah, by this no, fever to the totally point that right. the president of the Soviet Union is calling the president of the United States hopefully on the red phone I can only hope it's on the red phone <laughs> saying who who killed Laura Palmer what yeah. a strange thing so yes. uh speak okay so here's an email from uh John Christian Christensen who this is an email that I think speaks to our ongoing interest about linguistic depictions of uh, European cultures in Twin Peaks as established by our Norwegian obsession. He writes, just some preemptive answers on the Icelandic shenanigans in this episode from an Icelandic person. The stereotype is a bit troubling of Icelanders being this crowd of drunken oafs, but I guess there might be a tiny bit of truth to it. The Icelandic singing in the background, that's absolutely real Icelandic. But whenever there's an Icelandic character in shot, I'm not sure that any of the actors playing them are actual Icelandic people. Einar Thorsen, the guy who's supposed to sign the deal, is being played by someone called Brian Straub, which sounds German. He doesn't have a line in this episode, but he does later and doesn't sound anything like an Icelander speaking English. Then there's the scene of the Icelandic gang singing in Ben Horn's office, which I'm pretty sure they're all just singing gibberish at that point. Weird. Jerry does a commendable job trying to speak Icelandic, though. And the woman he flirts with is called Heppa, which I initially dismissed as not an Icelandic name, but apparently it is the 68th most popular name in Iceland. Fun fact, David Lynch came to Iceland for the first time in 2009 to lecture about transcendental meditation, which he claimed would cure many of Iceland's problems, including the economic collapse. Anyway, thanks for an excellent cast. Cheers, John. Good. Uh, Brian Curry also uh, writes in, Twin Peaks High School bathroom paint pattern. I believe the stripe motif is also in the high school halls in uh, Fire Walk With Me, which is the Twin Peaks movie. Mm-hmm. The zigzag is a representation of the mountains on the town sign. He claims about the 
<laughs> the stripe pattern. That's the exact stripe pattern. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Did you want to actually go through that guy's forum post? So this was written by Lost in the Movies, who I guess wrote us an email because I remember someone yes. saying that. Yes, that's the person whose email you read part of and said you read. Later. Oh, okay. So I didn't realize it was the same person. This episode's feedback segment brought to you by Lost in the Movies. Okay. Uh, so he says, what's interesting about Lynch as compared to a lot of other artists who achieve a similar sense of distance and irony is that it seems more to be a side effect of his approach rather than its aim. In other words, he likes to mix humor and seriousness in off kilter ways, but not because he is satirizing the serious aspects simply because he finds the mix of the two textures interesting. Furthermore, sometimes he doesn't even acknowledge this, the humor at all. A good example is the scene with Laura's mother crying in the pilot. In a recent interview with both Grace Zabriskie, the actress who plays Mrs. Palmer, and David Lynch, she claimed there was some dark humor to the scene, but Lynch denied this vehemently. Twin Peaks is also unusual because Mark Frost is a much stronger co-creator than, than is typically recognized. It's a very complex collaboration, especially since both are very vague about who contributed what. But I've found their div divergences are evident by observing who wrote and directed what, examining their other works, and reading some really sharp accounts and analyses of their contributions. Frost is a more self-aware writer than Lynch, and he was the one responsible for the very arch tongue-in-cheek tone of the Invitation to Love soap opera parodies. You'll notice that Lynch only presents the opening title and avoids showing any actual clips from Invitation to Love in the episode he directed. I would say to the extent that Twin Peaks is intentionally postmodern, that's more Frost doing than Lynch's. Yeah, that all, I like that assessment a lot. I thought it was strong. I agree. You want to move into spoiler zone? Yeah. All right. So thanks for listening to this week's Twin Peaks rewatch. As always, please do not continue to listen if you have not yet watched the whole series and the movie Fire Walk With Me. Uh, if you like the show, please tell your friends. We really can, the only way we can spread is by word of mouth. So that is super appreciated. And if you do enjoy it, uh, consider giving us a rating and some comments on iTunes. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Twin Peaks Rewatch on Twitter at Peaks Rewatch. And our website is twinpeaksrewatch.com. Yes. And as you've probably heard from this episode, our forum community is growing, and it's actually a great place to discuss the episode. Every week, we put up a thread for the next week's episode, and a lot of the tangential and, in some cases, the main conversation in our episodes is actually coming from the stuff that the community has been sort of tossing back and forth in the week leading up to us recording. So mm -hmm. there's a link on TwinPeaksRewatch.com to the forum, so just go check it out. With that, goodbye. Hello. <laughs> Hello, Jake. Uh, so let me, I'm going to finish off that the email that we started reading before that moved into a spoiler zone. So this was, um, this was the email, if you remember, that was talking about this being the first solo Mark Frost teleplay right. and uh, how that relates to the portrayal of Agent Cooper. Um, so he, we ended the, the previous half of the email saying, um, for Lynch, Cooper was an idealized version of the perfect detective in touch with the spirit world, slightly off kilter, almost a bit otherworldly with his childlike enthusiasm and brilliant intuition. Obviously Frost embraced this aspect of Coop, but also paints him as more human, flawed and uncertain. He continues. You can also see this spoilers in the Wyndham Earl storyline, which was Frost's baby, the spinoff book written by Frost's brother and the season finale. According to Martha Nokasum's book, The Passion of David Lynch, the final twist was Frost's idea and not something Lynch particularly agreed with, especially the way it was originally written, which he subtly changed. Another interesting example. In episode 14, when the log lady shows up at the sheriff's station, uh, Frost's scripts, written like this episode by him alone, makes Cooper noncommittal and uneasy. But Lynch changes this in the shooting so that Coop is in tune with the log lady and immediately agrees to go to the roadhouse. What's your take on Cooper? Do you prefer him to have a vulnerable side, to be completely larger than life, or do you like the Coop we have throughout a mix of Lynch's and Frost's impulses? Keep up the good work, Joel Bacco. That's really interesting that Frost wrote something in a script that David Lynch just altered upon shooting. Yep.
That's not surprising at all, though. No, no, no. It's totally not surprising. <laughs> yeah. I, I generally actually like the way that Lynch portrays Cooper, I think, but I'm glad that Frost's stuff is in the mix. Otherwise, I think that it would just be... It would be more more stylized to the point that it would probably be a little more of a mess to my liking for sort of the actual complexity of the story that's here. But I don't, I also have no way of really envisioning what could yeah, be one exactly way or the other. Right. It's sort of impossible to, yeah. to play the what if game. Just the moments where Lynch directs Cooper, I like probably the most as far as who agent Cooper is, but I'm glad that he exists as a more rounded out character over the course of the show, I guess. Yeah. But it's totally just the breakdown like that of where Cooper is as a character across the different episodes and different writers and different directors is, is really nice for sure. Um, so here's an email from Jared Emerson Johnson, who is, Hey, our buddy, uh, our buddy. Yes. He writes in, Hey guys, regarding Mike's tattoo in the dream, the inhabiting spirit within Mike says that the, that tattoo said firewalk with me. I always assumed that the tattoo actually said this in real life and that Philip Gerard just never really saw it in the way Leland seems to be able to selectively miss and or forget many things about being possessed. Um, that's an interesting interpretation yeah. that it, that it, he does actually think it says mom. Right. Um, so Jared continues to me, him saying it said mom seemed like something he believed, but that wasn't true. Like how he explains that it was lost in an accident. Although I suppose Mike could have orchestrated the accident, even though him saying, so I took the whole arm off implies a more direct action. It isn't really explicitly followed up though. So it's possible that in the spirit world, it says fire walk with me, but in the real world, it says mom, who knows? It's definitely ambiguous. We can all agree that Mike losing his shit and screaming mom is pretty excellent. At least we have that as a known known. <laughs> true. Yeah. the All true facts. A lot of the sort of doppelganger, duplicate clone, like not clone, not clone, sorry, but like mirror weird split people exist in diff- in two different planes and all that stuff becomes increasingly explicit in the, se- in the second season. Definitely. And I think when we get to that, like both Jared and what's the name of the guy who wrote the email that you, that you split in half. Oh, lost in the movies. Yes. He gave his actual name and I've already forgotten it, but both I know Jared's the person who introduced me to twin peaks and that, um, lost in the movies as a reference from his forum is they're both listeners of the type that we talked about last week that just have basically a nonlinear working knowledge of twin peaks in their head. I can tell where they're writing about this. That speaks to this next episode, this next email here, which I'll read. But yeah, um, Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, just, I expect when we get into the later stuff, we are probably going to be talking back about the stuff that we're experiencing now in that way, just because we're paying so sure. much attention yeah, to this. Definitely. This time. Um, so, uh, Daniel writes, Chris and Jake, I want to thank you for clarifying at the end of last episode that this really is a rewatch for you two. And you aren't as deep into the lore as we might've assumed. So I accept your invitation to share whatever might scream out to us obsessive fans. Margaret says the owls won't see us in her cabin. What is it about her house that prevents the owls that aren't what they seem from seeing them? If the red curtains of the red room are really part of some timeless extra-dimensional space between dream and reality, why do they seem to show up so much in the physical world in connection to the murder of one specific victim? One-eyed Jacks and Jacks and Jacques' cabin both have them. The Roadhouse does too. In the film, Lynch and Engels introduce something to do with electricity into the mythology, though it is all very vague and mysterious exactly how it connects. Though I don't know if this was consciously planned that way, I think there are a lot of strange electrical occurrences which happen through the series if you pay attention. For example, in the pilot when the overheads are flickering throughout Laura's autopsy. Here, when Jerry is about to give a speech, his microphone shorts out, and the music mysteriously starts up to interrupt him, which causes Leland to break down dancing and crying uncontrollably. This definitely seems to be related to his subconscious guilt over Laura's murder, which he has forgotten. But I wonder if these moments indicate the Lodge entities are nearby and messing with the characters connected to them or something like that. Daniel. Yeah, I mean, that's... 
it's it's funny going through this with just a like half present three quarters present memory of the entire events of the show because when the microphone first shorted out when Jerry was having that conversation like just as an example of where I am as a viewer of this show I was like oh there's that wacky David Lynch electric stuff going on that someone put in kind of did a half-assed job of and then when the music came on it turned into that Leland mm-hmm. scene I was like oh okay that's probably it's at least vaguely sort of tonally relevant to those right. previous things but yeah. then the farther into the show you get, the more explicit that stuff becomes. Yeah. To the point that some of it actually loses me as a as a Should as a fan a of the show. Like once it, yeah. once it becomes so explicit that it's like almost codified lore, I kind yeah. of I kind of choose to distance myself from it and continue to enjoy it the way that I like. Just keep it mm-hmm. in an ambiguous space in my yeah. own sort of once like it mental map. Too mundane. It's yeah. it has less power. Yeah. yeah, but but it will be interesting once we start once. Once the Lodge stuff becomes more explicit, especially in early season two, I feel like a lot of this stuff is deliberate. It's just maybe not 100% like the rules of the road. This is the Bible of how this stuff works. Yeah. But it's wacky happenstance. Turns out to have meaning. It then, you can put way more meaning on it if you go too crazy with it, I think. Sure. Um, So I will end on this final email from Alexi. Alex, perhaps? Uh, Jeopardy on November 14th. I hope none of the first time watchers were watching Friday's episode of Jeopardy. One of the questions was literally Leyland Palmer, AKA killer Bob. <laughs> wow. Why would they do that? I mean, I yeah, guess it's Twin Peaks. It's, it's, it's statute of limitations is up. I suppose. Yeah, I guess Leland, it's been I 25 years. Yep. Um, on that. <laughs> thanks for listening. Yep. The Twin Peaks rewatch. Yeah. See you guys next week for episode seven, AKA episode six. AKA, I don't have the name with me, but we'll all know it by next week. What, Chris? I want to marry the log lady. What of it? I guess then I might become a log, but that's a story for another episode.